Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Hello, uh, my name is Mary Caldor. I'm a Professor Emeritus here, and I'm really pleased to welcome you for this really, I think, fascinating occasion. Uh, and I know there are lots of people online, so I hope you can see us and hear us well. So the occasion is to talk about the book that Alessia uh, Kome, I have to pronounce it right, Komechuk, <laughs> um, has written. It's a wonderful book. It's called The Death of a Soldier Told by His Sister. And I think it would have been a wonderful book even if Russia hadn't invaded Ukraine, uh, because it's a very moving story uh, about what it's like to live through this kind of tragedy. And I, I, you know, I found particularly it tells the story through moments, through different moments, which I think is the only way you can really understand grief, which is what the book is about. So she's going to start, and she, let me tell you a little bit who she is. She's the director of the Ukrainian Institute in London. She's a historian and a writer. She's taught the history of East Central Europe at several British universities. Uh, and she writes for a range of amazing outlets like the New York Times, the New York Review of Books, Der Spiegel, uh, Anyway, the list goes on. Um, and um, she's, she's, not, she's written another book, as well as this one, called Undetermined, uh, Ukrainians' Post-War Narratives of the Waffen-SS. And that was published in 2013. But this today is about the book she wrote about her brother. And she's going to start, and then we're gonna have comments from Paul Mason and Luke Cooper. So over to you, Alessia. Thank you so much. First of all, apologies for um, my slightly odd voice. I have a bit of a sore throat and I might have a, a, a coughing moment <laughs> during my talk, so I apologize already. comfortable there, because or will you go to No, that? no, I'm good here. I've got another mic, so. Great, perfect. Yeah. Just but I'll stand, because um, I just find it more comfortable to uh, speak while I'm standing. Um, and uh, thank you so much, uh, Luke uh, and the London School of Economics for inviting me, Mary for hosting us, and Paul for join, joining this discussion about Russia's war. And it is Russia's war, not the Ukraine war, not a crisis in Ukraine. It is Russia that started this war in 2014, and it is Russia that escalated it in 2022. It is Russia that can end this war any day by withdrawing its troops from a sovereign state. By ending its war in Ukraine, it can help end Putin's dictatorship. So it can kill two birds with one stone. It just has to stop killing Ukrainians first. It's Russia's war primarily against Ukraine because it's Ukraine that suffers losses in human lives and material devastation on a daily basis. It's Ukrainian homes that are destroyed, 
Cities turned into post-apocalyptic wastelands, POWs shot or decapitated, and the crimes filmed and exhibited by the perpetrators. It's Ukrainians who find their loved ones in mass graves and rapidly growing military cemeteries. It's Ukrainians who will have to raise a generation of war children and deal with the consequences of nationwide PTSD. It's Ukrainians who are in their 10th year of defending themselves against Russia's aggression. However, Russia's war is also directed at the rest of the world, at us. It employs nuclear blackmail and the threat of famine to bully its way through failures on the battlefield. It exploits existing anti-US and anti-European grievances to undermine Ukraine's subjectivity and the democratic order. It presents itself as a protector of Christian and other morals while kidnapping Ukrainian children and trying to threaten the most basic values, protection of life and human dignity. A kleptocratic dictatorship that has been fighting neo-colonial wars for decades, Russia has been presenting itself as an alternative to the corruption of the rotten West. The same West that has treated Russia as a broker of peace and not a perpetrator of war for the first years of aggression. The same West that allowed Russia to benefit from the crimes that it committed, not only by continuing business as usual, but also by letting it exploit our energy dependency in order to fund the escalation of this war. So, it's Russia's war against Ukraine, but it is also Russia's war against the rest of us. And we have been playing a role in it, whether we want to admit it or not. Now, why have I started this talk that is meant to focus on Ukraine by discussing Russia? Because sooner or later, and believe me, it's usually sooner rather than later, in all the talks that I've given over the last 14 months, someone asks me to speak about Russia. And here's a selection of the frequently asked questions. For instance, why is the Russian army performing so poorly? Not why the Ukrainian army is performing so well against all odds. <laughs> what will it take for Russian society to take to the streets and protest, rather than what has made Ukrainians so intolerant of any signs of authoritarianism and determined to fight, it, uh, to fight against it? What will happen to the Russian language in Ukraine now that even Russophone Ukrainians don't wish to speak it? Rather than how is it that, how, how was it possible that the Ukrainian language managed to survive and even thrive in spite of centuries of Russification? How can we help the Russian liberals survive? Rather than why there are so few Russian voices, even in liberal circles, that condemn Russian imperialism and admit complicity? And finally, will the post-Putin leadership, whatever that might be, save Russia? rather than what we all can do to make sure that Ukraine is saved from this and future genocidal attacks. In case you were going to ask some of those questions, you still can, of course. I don't even mention the constant need to explain why Ukrainians feel uncomfortable about sharing platforms with the Russians. Why we don't want to focus on Russian victimhood and prefer to talk about the existential war that has been waged against our country and why there can't be any talk of reconciliation until there's justice. 
I've seen raised eyebrows when I've said these things many times. Sometimes they were accompanied by the patronizing, you're being emotional, let's be rational comment. And sometimes by silence that implied, don't say these things, they are inappropriate for a victim. The thing is, Ukrainians don't want to be victims. Ukrainians are survivors of this war and of Russian imperialist attempts to destroy them historically. But since these questions continue to be asked, and the discussion that is meant to be on Ukraine so frequently turns to Russia, I decided that it's an opportunity for me to steer it this time. So, when I was choosing what to read to you today from my book, I decided to go for a chapter that was the hardest to write and continues to be the hardest to read in public. It's called The Enemy. Before I read it, I'd like to point out that I wrote most of this book before the start of the full-scale invasion. My brother, Volodya, joined the Ukrainian armed forces in 2015 and was killed in action in 2017. At that point, in most in Western Europe had forgotten that there was a war on the other side of Europe. They accepted the occupation of Crimea as a done deal. Those who were aware of the hostilities in Eastern Ukraine mostly bought into Russia's propaganda, which portrayed the war um, that, it, that it was waging as some kind of internal conflict, as a civil war. So it was important for me to write my personal account of loss in order to do what I could at the time to raise awareness about the reality of this war and to make people realize that it's being waged not so far away after all, that it can profoundly affect people who live, even people who live here in London. After the start of the full-scale invasion, I was able to update the book with several new chapters for the new edition. And the chapter I'm about to read now is one of those new texts. I wrote it this time last year when all of us were still in a state of shock and trying to make sense of the brutality that we were witnessing. So, here is the chapter. <clears throat> the enemy. To suffer in chains is a great humiliation, but to forget those chains without having broken them is the worst kind of shame. I don't hate them. I don't hate the Russians as a nation. I wish I could because it would provide an outlet for my pain, grief and rage. I sometimes envy my friends who can spit out abuse towards the enemy like you spit out rotten fruit. This hate-filled rejection of an entire people seems to liberate them. But I can't do it. When the Russians started the full-scale invasion, it was 3 a.m. in London. I was awake, finishing an article I had promised to send to a newspaper by the morning. I decided to check Twitter one more time before going to bed. Lightning symbols at the start of tweets did not signal breaking news. They signaled explosions. Scrolling through my feed, I came across a video in which a CNN correspondent standing in front of Kiev's majestic St. Sophia bell tower was reporting live that he had just heard a big bang right here behind me. Another journalist, a former U.S. Army veteran who had been reporting on the war in Ukraine since 2014 and kept warning about the escalation, tweeted, Good God, it's actually happening. Just as on the day when I learned that my brother had been killed, I had a clear mind and acted methodically. 
I picked up the phone and called my closest friend, who had just gone back to Ukraine a couple of weeks earlier. She hadn't felt like doom-scrolling on her London sofa and preferred to make herself useful in Ukraine in case it actually happened. Realizing that at 5 a.m. Kyiv time, she'd probably be still asleep, I rang until she picked up. How do you wake someone up to tell them that their country is under attack? I tried to put on my gentlest voice, like the one my mother used when she woke me up on a dark winter morning to get me ready for school. Wake up, my dear. It started, I said. So, it's actually happening then, she replied, half asking for clarification, half confirming to herself that she had made the right choice and wouldn't be doom-scrolling from London like I was. I then called my London friends, whose families I knew to be in Kyiv, to let them know that it was happening. Having done my duty as a messenger of bad news, I descended onto the floor in the middle of the living room, still holding onto my phone, and started to howl, like I had done when the news of my brother's death hit me properly for the first time. Damn you. All of you. I heard, my, I heard myself say out loud. I have never cursed anyone in my life until then. The words were made of such profound darkness that I didn't even know that I could carry something like that inside me. They were directed at the Russians, not only Putin. Not simply the ones who were launching the rockets, the entire nation. The power of the words uttered into an empty living room was so strong that I could feel the vibrations of my voice against my skin. The darkness was so heavy that it enveloped me entirely and began to suffocate me. I was terrified of the might of my curse. At that moment, I was certain that my wish for them all to be damned was just and would therefore come true. The bright, book-filled living room started to go dark as if someone had dimmed the lights. And kneeling in the middle of it, on the floor, with my phone in my hands, I felt as if I was falling into the abyss. I was being crushed under the weight of my curse. In my mind, I recited the names of those whom I could ring and ask for support as one recites a prayer memorized in early childhood. I stopped at Masha. She's a well-known Ukrainian volunteer. Of course, who else? We had just spoken an hour or so ago, having not been in touch for several months because of our busy lives. Then, which now felt like a lifetime ago, she had asked me what the mood was like in the UK. I said that everyone was pretty sure the full-on war was imminent. I asked her what she thought. She too agreed that it was imminent. It might not happen tonight, but it'll happen soon, she said. It did happen that night. I phoned her and, like a child, said, Masha, what do I do now? What is the most efficient thing to do? She told me to get in touch with journalists and raise the alarm. The next few weeks became a haze of given interviews, talks, comments by day, and checking the news and breaking into fits of crying by night. Until my tears dried up, and the only thing that remained was a desperate need to be efficient. Unlike my friends and relatives in Ukraine, I didn't have to work from a bomb shelter. I could sleep in my own bed. I was not in danger of being raped by the invading troops. My parents were not at risk of being taken out of their homes and shot in the back of their heads. My partner or my brother hadn't been called up. My eldest brother had been killed in this war, but he had been buried in a beautiful cemetery, not in a mass grave. I counted my blessings, one after another, to keep myself going and stay efficient. Curses were not efficient, 
So they were left behind in the darkness of my living room, in the middle of the floor. <clears throat> Do I still want them all to be damned? I don't dare answer that question. I just know I'm not able to hate them all. I despise the ones who endorsed their criminal regime through silence. I loathe those who remained apolitical, letting blood pour through their fingers, but saying, we didn't cause the bleeding, so it's not our fault. I can't tolerate the ones who do not feel complicit in the war because they are against Putin and want peace. Paying taxes that fund the army don't want to bring about peace. So those who choose to continue their lives in Russia as normal must at least be aware of their complicity. I pity the rest who have grown accustomed to living in humiliation, contempt, injustice administered by their own government. I have no respect for those for whom dignity is as alien as freedom. Do I hate the Russian army? Can a group of looting, raping thugs be called an army? I feel repulsion when I think of criminals whose army duty consisted of shooting civilians, torturing children, and sharing their conquests with supportive rel relatives back in their police state. Those who joined up, having been persuaded that they were going to denazify Ukraine, were just as criminal as their looting comrades. Some of them realized they had been wrong when they got to Ukraine and saw no Nazis, only the hatred in the eyes of Russophone Ukrainians for their murdering liberators. Ignorance is a choice. The choice they made when for years they lapped up propaganda and again when they set off to bring peace by shelling hospitals and kindergartens. There's also another type, the one stricken by poverty. When, the, when following the collapse of the USSR, Ukrainians kept on fighting the corrupt legacy of the old communist empire and tried their best to grow into democracy, Putin's Russia perfected repression and poverty, developing a nation so docile it was frightened to imagine a life without its abusive leader. Those soldiers who signed their contracts to kill Ukrainians in order to make a bit of money for their families in the most deprived regions of Russia, the regions that often happen to be populated by national minorities, filmed their excitement at the sight of a Nutella jar in one of Ukrainian flats they plundered. Not to mention the stolen washing machines that have, become now, uh, that have now become an emblem of Russian conquests. This pathetic scene fails to spur hatred in me. I simply want them gone from my country, all of them, the poor, the ideological, the cynical. The Russians do not take to the streets to protest the war because the media is censored in Russia, say some. It's because people are afraid to make their voices heard, say others. Putin is to blame, not the Russians. But it's the Russians who shaped Putin as much as he shaped Russia. He put the chains on them and they wore them obediently. But what about the ones who opposed? The ones who left Russia because they did not agree with the regime. Some declare their disgust with the war and say that it is not conducted in their name, but still choose to post on their social media platforms a picture of their granddad with the ribbon of St. George, the current symbol of violence against Ukrainians, on the 9th of May. Others in London, Berlin, or Vienna publicly join victory days, day parades. Um, that have long stopped serving the function of commemorating the war dead and have instead been turned into the frenzy of the Russian cult of violence. There are those who openly speak of their complicity through sheer association with the, with, with the aggressor and do what they can to help stop the war. 
but they are so few and far between in a nation of 140 million that they serve us as exceptions, approve the rule. Before the full-scale invasion, their presence used to reassure me that not all lost in Russia, not all is lost in Russia. Now their minuscule numbers simply make me feel sorry for them. Being Russian and fully realizing what pain that nationality has come to symbolize to so many can't be easy. And Putin? The only image my mind conjures, conjures up when I hear that name is, no, not of his grave, but of familiar photos from the Nuremberg trials with him and his entourage in a dock in place of the Nazis. My mind photoshops their faces onto the historic photos to remind me that justice prevails. Yes, it is partial, delayed, incommensurate with the suffering caused by the perpetrators, but I want to believe that it will be administered and that we will see that image everywhere as we have been seeing the images of the mass graves from Irpin, Bucha, Mariupol. If I could hate the entire nation that has chosen to become my enemy, my grief, my new grief, now not just for my brother, but for my whole people, might pour out and I might be able to live without the need to carry its weight wherever I go. But I don't. I don't hate all Russians. But nor do I feel sympathy or forgiveness. While my feelings evolve, the one thing that will not change is the desire for justice. And I know it will come. Thank you. And my voice lasted, so that's good. <laughs> Thank you so much. And I think I should have said that, you know, this, I think it would never have been a purely personal story, but now it's taken on so much significance because of the war, the story of this book. And of course, this chapter brings it up to date. I'm going to turn now to Luke. Uh, Luke is a associate professorial research fellow here at LSE and he works with me. We have a big conflict research program and Luke leads the Ukraine program. Thanks and uh, thanks uh, so much um, Alessia for that incredible introduction. So I'll say um, uh, three things by way of comment and on, on the book and I must say, I actually read the first edition uh, and, and of, that was published prior to the full-scale invasion. So this is the first time that I've heard the additional um, chapter. And so uh, I'll say three things. The first, I think, that resonated with me, and I know Mary feels the same way, is that this is a story that is deeply personal and is about the nature of grief and loss and personal loss. I think part of the reason that it resonated with me so strongly when I read it was that I have also lost an elder uh, sibling, uh, my sister, and particularly the, the discussion in the book around how you deal with questions around how many siblings you have, you know, just, just immediately touched me so, so uh, uh, quickly and swiftly. And uh, my sibling, elder sibling, was not... Uh, lost uh, through war, but lost to uh, illness, drug addiction. And of course, these are deeply, deeply different types of death, and, and, but they're both forms of tragedy. And uh, the book, I think, 
it has this passage, and it's, I have to be careful how I talk about it, because Alessia says it's not, it wasn't a heroic death, or why do we talk about it as a heroic death? Is it an honorable death? And there's this just fascinating discussion around how we even understand those that are giving their lives right now for the defense of Ukraine. How do we even talk about the uh, ultimate loss that they are making? And I think you say, and, and, and you hear this from comrades who are fighting on the front too, that you know, the most likely way to die is by accident on the front. You realize as soon as you arrive on the front that actually an accidental death is the most likely one that you will um, face. Um, so the book talks about all of these different um, experiences of loss and interpersonal connection and gives kind of a, a textured meaning. So when you've been through this experience, I think you struggle to find the words and somehow Alessia found the words and put it into a book. And I think it was in that sense an extraordinary um, achievement in every respect. And so the second thing I wanted to say is moving from the personal to um, the political, that the book also describes the way in which, and I think you see this right now after the full-scale invasion of Ukraine too, of course, on a much larger uh, scale, but the way in which there's a series of individual actions that people, that those that are supporting their brothers or sisters uh, that are taking up, uh, are, are taking up the, the resistance on the front lines and, and elsewhere in the armed forces, the way that, and it's a series of individual actions to support them, the one at the start of the book, or the first edition, is about get, trying to find the best pair of boots. And now you see with the full-scale invasion that there's these kinds of networks that are forming all over the place, made up of these quite informal um, connections, where people are just mobilizing both in Ukraine and outside Ukraine across the migrant and refugee uh, community in Poland, for, for instance. And my, um, our, our research uh, team and colleagues in Poland at Jagiellonian University are studying this. You have this kind of extraordinary civic mobilization that's made up of these networked um, interactions. My colleague at Jagiellonian University, Karolina Czeska-Shaw, has talked about this as a kind of post-Fordist model of humanitarian relief that kind of links together institutions um, that are certainly playing a role, but there's also just this massive volunteer mobilization going on all over the place made up of all these different uh, networked interactions. And I thought as Paul was on the panel, what reminded me rereading the book is actually your discussion at the beginning of the last decade of these network social movements that were leading the uprising in the Arab, whether it's the Arab Spring, whether it's anti-austerity movements uh, in the West, there's this rise of this highly networked civic politics um, all over the place. And really you see that in this kind of continuity um, with, with the movements that are mobilizing around Ukraine. And then the third and final thing I wanted to say is what does the book tell us? Well, what, what is Ukraine fighting for and how and how can those, those aims be realized? I think, you know, and, and why did your, you know, your brother sort of believe so strongly in what Ukraine was fighting for that he was able to give, 
to, to make the ultimate sacrifice for it. I think, you know, your brother's story tells us also, and, and of course the book is doing this, like using his personal story to tell us, well, this is telling us something about the history of the last 30 years and even longer. And I, I think there's a short passage um, in the book where you talk about his first service in the armed forces being in the Crimea crisis of the early 1990s where Ukraine nearly came to war the first time after the fall of the Soviet Union and he would of course tragically die the second time after the invasion of uh, 2014 and then of course we get the full-scale invasion <coughs> that he didn't live to, to see and I think you know your, your brother's life therefore sort of is talking about this or tells us about a kind of re-reading of the last 30 years that I think is really um, important and is kind of happening. So another thing that our, our research uh, network is looking at, our colleagues at the University of Edinburgh in this case, is they study the number of peace agreements and peace deals. And in the 1990s, uh, Russia is the main peacemaking, and I put it in inverted commas carefully, right, peacemaking actor, because they are a party to numerous peace agreements. And actually, in the last 30 years, they've been a party, uh, they're the third most numerous party to peace agreements that comes up um, in the data. Now, this kind of tells us something about, you know, lots of people saw that, yes, the 1990s was a period of conflict and war in many respects, but it was also a time in the conventional narrative of peace resolution, of peacemaking. And I think what we can talk about now, in light of the experience, if we're trying to revise that history, is that this really 1990s wasn't really a period of peace resolution. What did it resolve? What was satisfied? What democratic and human rights did it bring about, it actually is probably better seeing it as a kind of period of froze, freezing of conflicts, of not resolving these conflicts. And so thank you for coming to the LSE and talking about the book. I mean, it's, a, it's incredibly brave to write, it's incredibly brave uh, to talk about it even more so, and uh, I really appreciate you making the effort. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> thank you very much, Luke, and uh, such relevant points. I mean, I think one of the things about the book is that somehow war makes you quite hardened about death. You see all these numbers, you know, there are more Russian casualties than there are Ukrainian casualties. And actually behind every single one of these casualties is a terrible tragedy. So it's really important. Among soldiers, yeah. What? Soldiers, not, yeah, not civilians, civilians, not civilians, soldiers, <laughs> casualties. Did I say casualties? Or what? Soldiers, you were talking about soldiers. Yeah, but there's also a terrible tra tragedy behind civilians dying as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, but not on the... Oh, yeah, sorry. oh, oh you mean yes. soldiers' casualties? Yes, yes. Uh, absolutely. Yes. <laughs> no, sorry. Did I say civilians? Anyway, it doesn't no. matter. <laughs> okay, so anyway, that's... You know, and uh, funnily enough, you were talking about these civil society networks, and we just, in our group, had a session about you, uh, Sudan today. And it's exactly the same in Sudan. There are these resistance committees created all over just to help people survive in this situation. So, I'm going to now turn to Paul, Paul Mason. I think he probably doesn't need much introduction. <coughs> He's a very well-known journalist. Uh, and he writes a lot 
about both about social movements and about capitalism and about fascism and about defense issues and war issues and he's been really brilliant on the ukrainian issue so i'm looking forward to hearing what well, he says uh, too. thank thank you mary and, and thank you alessia too for writing this book I, i've got a lot to say about the politics of the of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and I suppose I should get it out there now, is, is, is simply to say Ukraine is going to win, and you are going to get justice, and your brother will get justice, uh, Volodymyr Pavlov will get justice, if we in Britain and the wider international community around us carry on supporting uh, Ukraine and its just fight against this invasion. I say it because I hope everybody in this room agrees with it, but there'll be plenty of people here at the LSE who don't, Plenty of people in the LSE who think the Ukraine should stack its cards and give up half its sovereignty. Um, and what, what do we care about Ukrainian lives because there are more valid ones elsewhere. And uh, you know, I always say this because I want to provoke those people into being honest about what they think. What I think about this book, you were kind enough to give it to me uh, just before I went to Kiev, uh, four days before, five days before the war started. And uh, I read it really quickly, about half of it, and I read the other half when I got back on the day before that 3 a.m. call you had. Um, and so I, I, I don't think I could have got through the events that happened uh, without having read it. And I've been asking myself, what, myself why, because I don't know you. Um, and also because I've reported on uh, wars and conflict situations quite close up and been through all the training one has to deal with uh, post-trauma stress um, and I think it's this um, it's a book well the first thing is when you speak to people who deal with people who've been traumatized who therapize them one of the things they always say is the subconscious doesn't understand time it has no sense of time and therefore when it's triggered uh, by things that have happened in traumatic situations like war it doesn't know whether it was yesterday or 10 years ago. This, of course, is what you find whenever you, you speak to veterans or survivors of conflict. Um, that's what, when you hear of the word post-traumatic stress, one of, the, one of the factors we're dealing with is that their subconscious does not understand whether the danger is now, 10 years ago, or in a different century. Um, I felt this very strongly when I read your book. You know, it's a book that says it's about grief, but, but if, you, if I, as a journalist, want to put it into a, into a category, it is an exploration of post-trauma. Um, and in the way you do this, I think is, I always keep thinking of it, this is like a, a, a written version of a surrealist movie, because you keep moving angle of, you know, you keep moving of, of the point of view, you keep moving the time, sometimes it's timeless, Sometimes it's completely fictional when you're writing your brother, uh, you, when you're writing a fairy story about three, the wizard and the, the cat, and I can't remember what the other one, the eagle. Uh, and, and, you are, and, and, and sometimes it's very there in the moment, like when you're acting uh, on stage, and for the first time you're, you're using videos shot by your brother. Um, uh, why... What, what step change does writing like this bring to us in our generation? Uh, and I, I think I've got an insight into it. Um, like you, Mary, I, I'm lucky enough to be old enough to have known people who fought in World War II. Indeed, I've met 
people who fought in World War One or not uh, survived World War One. And in Britain, we have a phrase that every British person will know about. Maybe the, put those of you not from Britain maybe never heard this because most of us hear it in family connections. The phrase is associated with people who lived through those things. He never talks about it. Mm. He never talks about it. You'll hear that in every working class pub, every working class family home. He never talks about it. We come from a culture that never talked, where the survivors never talked about what had happened. And my insight into that is, of course, when you then go, when, a lot of the di discourse we have in our society about the Second World War, as it has come out, has been written by quite high-functioning individuals. who The people who were in the SOE, people who've been in uh, fighter pilots, who in the end did write about their trauma and got it out in the end. Uh, that's the most powerful narratives of the Second World War in the English language are, are that. And then you look at oral histories, uh, things like Studs Terkel, The Good War. Terkel went out and got the story out of people. But I come from a working class community where I can tell you that the number of, I don't think I can name a high functioning individual among people who, who had experienced uh, war and conflict. Remembering of course that that carried on for, for working class people who were unlucky enough to join the British Army during the Irish conflict. There was a lot of people who came out of that very traumatised. And the average or a typical um, traumatised response was not talking about it, don't want to uh, go into the, the, any emotional connection with it, uh, get on with your life. I think what, uh, what, what strengthened me as I went into reporting and engaging, I mean, my engagement has been at a very long distance for the reasons some of you will know about, uh, with, with, the, with, the, uh, with the conflict, is that I, I was inspired by your voice here, by also, uh, also, it just so happens that just two or three weeks before the conflict, do you remember, Mary, we, we had an online um, seminar with Alessandra Matvichuk, who's now the Nobel laureate on behalf of her NGO. And I just thought, we're going into this conflict, actually, with a bunch of high-functioning, female, educated people who are experts in trauma before it's happened, or rather, before it's happening on the scale that, that it is now happening. And I think, why is that significant? Because I hope, you know, you have to hope that the victory of Ukraine in this war, the justice uh, Putin and his associates at The Hague, uh, the reimposition or the reconstruction of a more multipolar, but nevertheless rules-based uh, Westphalian order is achievable. And it's gonna be achieved by a generation that is incredibly emotionally intelligent and has been able to go into one of the worst, um, and you know, we have to name it, genocidal conflicts, um, a, ge a conflict with genocidal outcomes already and can deal with that or is going to be able to deal with it in a much stronger way than, I think actually, yes, stronger way than the generation that went into World War II because that generation that went into World War II Think about this. I don't want to embarrass you by comparing your work to Orwell's, but, but if you think about it, this work is a work of personal experience, quite, quite similar in position to, say, something like Homage to Catalonia. Homage to Catalonia is a very unemotional book. It doesn't deal with his own emotions. Even when he's shot, 
he's thinking, you know, I like life. He couldn't, and he, uh, you know, I don't think a man like Orwell could have written his own emotions. And yet he's one of the most honest writers of experience in that pre-war period. Now we go into these conflicts armed with an understanding of what trauma is, of what, what you call it, noble grief is. And I think that, um, this, that it can only strengthen anyone who reads it. Um, and it has certain, certainly strengthened me. Wow, well, thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah, that gives us so much to think about. As a matter of fact, I've always thought one of the problems in this country when we talk about the Second World War is that it's always a very jolly memory. You know, we won it, mm. the Blitz spirit, all of this kind of thing. And that one thing I did read, which gave a different story was, I don't know if you've ever read them, the Anthony Poe novels. And I remember saying all the nicest people from before the war get killed actually, because probably they're the most unselfish people. And I remember saying to my mother, you know, this is so surprising when I read this, because it really shows that World War II was just awful living through it. And she said, yes, that is exactly how it was. Mm. It was really awful. And it always does surprise me. I mean, we go on and on celebrating the Blitz and all of that. But anyway, let me, before I turn to questions from people, let me ask Alessia if she'd like to say something in response to what Paul and Luke have said. Thank you so much. I'd love to. I'll, I'll try and be very brief, but it's such a privilege to, to hear these comments. My goodness. Um, thank you both so much for reading it so closely, for, for, for exploring how it resonates with your experiences. And um, I'm sorry to hear about your brother. And I specifically talk about the comparison of the death on the battlefield and the death uh, from a different cause, for instance, taking your own life or dying to because of drugs and so on in, in the book because I, I understood that, again, uh, I was in a sort of privileged position to be talking about this noble grief uh, with people and I understand that often siblings aren't able to talk about it. So that was, or in the same way our society does not give that space for them to talk about it in the same way and yet the type of grief that you experience is just as devastating. I wanted to just very briefly comment on this idea of it being a personal story and then moving on from personal to political. Well, you see, because it's death, violent death on the battlefield and as a result of war, it is already political by default because wars are political. And it's kind of odd that for the last 14 months or so, I've been often approached by journalists who know uh, the book or my story to comment not as the director of the Ukrainian Institute or a historian or a Ukrainian expert, but as someone who can give a human angle to this war. So there will be experts who will talk about geopolitics and military strategy and whatnot. And I was supposed to talk to be the emotional sister who lost her brother, which is fine. I, you know, I'm happy to do that, obviously. Um, but it surprises me how we somehow separate the war space into the one with human angle and the one without. Uh, all of it is profoundly human, all of it is profoundly tragic. Every single one of those lives, civilian and military, that is lost has a story that merits uh, a book or certainly results in profound tragedy for those who survive. Um, so I wanted to mention that. 
Uh, I also wanted to, uh, I'm so grateful that you brought up this, and uh, all of you, I think, brought up this idea of individual action and this, uh, Ukraine is a network nation, you know, um, being really capable of self-organizing and uh, creating these NGOs and voluntary movements and so on. And it really, I mean, we've, we've kind of always been that way because we, we distrust the authorities so much for a good reason. Um, and so self-organization has always been um, pretty good uh, in Ukraine in the 90s, in 2004 during the Orange Revolution, then again during the Maidan Revolution, but really from the Maidan Revolution that it started to evolve into almost institutional civil society, um, which uh, immediately after the Maidan Revolution, when Yanukovych fled the country, replaced state institutions really did replace these institutions. And I saw my friends who were on the Maidan who created these, uh, for instance, um, sort of groups that protected human rights that got uh, prisoners out of uh, jail or guarded hospitals uh, to make sure that riot police doesn't come to kidnap, abduct those people in hospitals and so on. You know, they then turned into organizations like the one you mentioned, the Alexandra Matvichuk heads, um, they, a lot of them self-organized and went to the front and joined the armed forces. A lot of them strengthened and developed into uh, organizations that are now um, uh, buying provisions for the army and are functioning on the same level as, as the state institutions. And I think this is something that has been profoundly underestimated in the West. So when Paul, when you and I met for the first time, it was 16th of February 2022. I remember that day because it was at the... At the at an event that Ukrainian Institute London organized, where we were discussing, you were one of the panelists, and we were, we were discussing, will Russia escalate the war or will it not? Uh, it, the 16th of February was one of the dates that was predicted to be the start of the full-scale invasion. It didn't happen on the 16th of February, obviously it happened later on. Um, and uh, I think a lot of those people who thought at the time that Ukraine wouldn't last more than three days or a week or whatever, um, that it would collapse, simply misunderstood what Ukraine was about. They focused their attention in the wrong place. They looked at uh, the ongoing corruption in, uh, among the political elites or the oligarchs or, or, or you know, the usual suspects, but they did not see what happened to society, especially in those first eight years. And also what happened to the army, how the army changed from the army that my brother joined in 2015, for which I had to find boots and so on, um, to, to the army that we saw uh, eight years later. So I just wanted to point that out. And also, what are Ukrainians fighting for is such a good question. Well, that which, the choice that they made in 1991. And I think that's also been misunderstood, not only in Russia, but also elsewhere in the democratic world. We made the very, very clear choice where more than 90% of people voted in the referendum in 1991 for sovereignty, for independence in every single region of Ukraine, including Crimea. And it's been that sovereignty and independence that Ukrainians have been trying to protect ever since against uh, Russia's meddling, but also against internal authoritarian um, uh, instances when they happened, like with Yanukovych or Kuchma and so on. And it's, it's this protection of statehood which, which really translates into really basic things on, on, on a day-to-day -day level. It's protection of your rights, it's protection of human rights, it's protection of your dignity. There's a reason why Ukrainians refer to the, the Maidan revolution as the revolution of dignity. is because that's what it was about. It started off as a protest against Yanukovych's uh, 
decision not to sign association agreement with the EU, but it turned into basically Ukrainians saying, we are not going to tolerate this regime. Um, and, we, and, and we know what we want. And, and that's what they're fighting for. They're fighting for the future. They're fighting for that, that sort of country in which they want to live, uh, which they've been building. And I, and I don't think a lot of people understood that. And that's why there was the surprise at courage, defiance, resilience of Ukrainians in the first few months of the full-scale invasion. It shouldn't have been surprising. It should have been um, assumed that, that, that that's exactly the reaction that they were going to get. And therefore, they should have been supported and armed appropriately, appropriately before the full-scale invasion. And not with delays that are still, <laughs> we're still witnessing now. And that goes back to, to, to your point, Paul, when you said that, yes, Ukrainians will learn, and yes, that war is not going to spread into Europe, uh, and will be, Russia will be defeated in, in Ukraine rather than uh, elsewhere in, in Europe if we stay as invested in that victory as Ukrainians are. Uh, thank you for letting me, letting me add a little bit. <laughs> You've been, thank you for that. As a matter of fact, I was completely convinced that Ukraine would put up a big resistance, which is why I thought Putin wouldn't actually invade. But obviously, he didn't understand it. Anyhow. Uh, do we want an online question? Or would you, would someone from the audience like to ask An audience a question? Yeah. Hi. I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or, can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. Uh, yes, my name's David Morrison. Um, I'm a former journalist and uh, um, anti-corruption um, uh, specialist. But at any rate, um, what I was saying was uh, the, in a way, the cruelest thing about the war, um, despite all the heroism and effectiveness of Ukraine's military um, resistance, is that the ultimate solution has got to be, hasn't it, in Russia, and the extent to which the Russian people, um, I don't know exactly how they break out of this um, mold of brainwashing and sort of pseudo-nationalism, which um, seem to be hallmarks of the Putin regime. I mean, what evidence is there that the Russians are coming to a, a certain amount of, uh, not sense, but, you know, justice, really, about this. Thanks. You asked a question about Russia. See, I told you, sooner or later <laughs> it happens. <laughs> and usually it's sooner rather than later, but thank you for your question. Um, I, I have a relatively simple answer to that question, because I think I have heard it a few times now. Um, I mean, it's up to, obviously, up to the Russians to fix their state. Uh, the only way I think any change beginning to happen in Russia is with decisive defeat in Ukraine and also deoccupation of Crimea. That's the sort of project that they all bought into, that they all supported uh, overwhelmingly 
if Crimea is deoccupied, um, it will be very difficult for the leadership to explain uh, how this imperialist project is still working for this uh, society, and maybe then they will begin to, the society will begin to think that actually it isn't working, and they should be thinking about uh, another way to imagine their future rather than through some sort of uh, distorted version of the past. Do, do either of you want to add something? Uh, well, there's a related question online, and it's nice to take an online question. Yeah. So, so I mean, it does link to the question of Russia in, in the relative sense, but how important is NATO membership to securing Ukraine's future security and prosperity? You know, I'm sure Paul has much to say about it, but I can just say that, you know, for Ukrainians, I mean, we can see that that seems to be one of the few alternatives we have at the moment, absolutely important. We need security guarantees, not of the kind like 1994 Budapest memorandum that you mentioned earlier, one of those peacemaking, uh, so-called peacemaking, when actually just consolidating sphere of influence uh, that Russia wanted to have uh, pieces of uh, legislation, but actually proper security guarantees and NATO membership would be one of those. Yeah, I mean, I, I, would, I would go back one step to the Russia question. Um, one of the other books I immediately read once, this, once the full-scale invasion started was a, the, a history of, the, of, of the, 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 the mutinies in the Imperial Russian Army in 1917. Because I do believe that armies have a style of failure. Um, you know, th there is a long continuity between Tsarism, Soviet Union, and, uh, and, and oligarchic Russia. And, and the, the Imperial Russian Army in 1917 just, didn't just go, we're throwing away our arms and run away. What happened is that it, the, the army was politicized, actually politicized by the Kerensky regime, the so-called provisional government. It was them who set up political committees inside the Russian army. And if you watch what's been happening with Wagner, at one point, Wagner, of course, now is all Bakhmut and fighting the, the, um, fighting the, the, the Russian uh, defense ministry. But at one point, Wagner itself was politicizing the Russian army. They were infiltrating Russian units and actually staging fake, uh, fake uprisings to try and gain uh, political leverage over the, over the regime. That, to me, you know, if you look at your Russian history, what's happening is the Russian army is already, in its own dumb way, politicized. And I believe it will fail in the same way. It won't simply be its reaction if the counteroffensive goes well, like you say, deoccupy Crimea, retake Mariupol, whatever. That will be such a shock that it will deal a... No, it won't be a killer blow to oligarchic and Siloviki rule, but it will be a, a, a killer blow to the illusions on which this, this war is, is based on. And I think that in that light, see, I, what I think, I don't know whether we want to get onto this, but my, my big worry is, at the moment is about the shakiness of Western support for Ukraine. I do think what is happening is a, is a multi-dimensional chess game. And I think what's the, the, where our current rulers are thinking, where Biden and where Rishi Sunak, you know, uh, is, uh, are, are thinking. They're thinking, what if Ukraine wins this phase of the conflict and then straight afterwards, China starts rearming Russia? Because at that point, Moldova, Finland, Poland get really worried. Um, and I think what they're trying to do is head that off. And they're doing it by making diplomatic concessions to China over allowing it a role in, like we've seen this week with Zelensky's call, a role in the, 
in the mediation of a settlement. And those of us who are lucky enough to be targeted by uh, Chinese and Russian disinformation ops are well aware of this. If you watch their information ops right now, their information ops are full of messaging about how China's going to solve this, this problem, this, this thing. So I think that, that we have to hold out the possibility of NATO membership for Ukraine uh, and for Belarus. Uh, and we have to, obviously not with Lukashenko in charge, but we have to say to the populations of those countries, you will actually get a, a, a comfort blanket, a nuclear defense umbrella from this thing, this fizzing, unexploded bomb, which is Russian society, uh, that you're, you're unfortunately having to live next to for the next 50 odd years. I just think we're, uh, and that's the next, for those of us on the left, that's going to be the next argument. Because I can tell you, you of course, the tankies on the left, you know, they're, they're irreconcilably pro-Kremlin. Let's, let's be honest about it. But there's lots of people inside the Labour Party, and quite a few inside the Tory Party, who just think, I hope this thing goes away soon, because I can't stand it going on any much longer. One of the things that I'm on the side of in this, in this debate is this, is, this is the major conflict of your life. Uh, you know, people my age, it's, it's going to be going on until we die. It's, and, until the Russian regime collapses and its leaders are put on trial, this is not going away anytime soon. Get used to it. Think of diplomatic and political solutions that um, can stabilize the world around it. I think the grimmest, uh, the, the grimmest reading of what China and the role it's playing in this conflict is, is that China wants Russia to win the war. If China wants Russia to win the war, then that's a really negative scenario timeline mm. the world is on. Because yeah. that, in that situation, like uh, exactly in the event of a serious military reversals on the battlefield in Ukraine that Russia experiences, China can mobilize its huge productive power to directly support Russia and potentially turn the tables on the conflict. I'd, my, my reading and my sense of it is fortunately we're not in that world because of course China, while they describe themselves and Xi Jinping refers to Putin as his brother in arms, it's an ideological relationship and understood mm. as such autocrats aligned. It suits Xi Jinping's interests above all for Russia to be weakened in order to keep Russia as the weakened partner and to maintain the hierarchy of that um, relationship. And that's why I think that Zelensky has played it uh, diplomatically a very astute game in how he's responded to the Chinese overtures around diplomatic negotiations, saying simply that we're not prepared to give an inch on the fundamental principles of the question, but we're absolutely prepared to talk. And we would appreciate your help, actually, because you do have power here in making sure that we can export our grain, in making our nuclear, uh, nuclear uh, power stations uh, safe from Russian uh, control and uh, interference on pushing for de-escalation of the conflict. So I think, you know, Zelensky in Kiev has absolutely paid, played it right there. And then just the other thing I would say to loop back to, to the chapter at, at the beginning, I mean, and, and the, the, the enemy the chapter in, in the second edition, I, I, yeah, I, it's a, it's an it was an incredibly powerful set of statements. I mean, I would be a bit more 
optimistic about the reading. In, and I don't, well, I don't consider it optimistic, but it's optimistic relatively to, to, to the chapter. I mean, to plug our recent Russia-Ukraine Dialogues, which is an online webinar series where we had a panel of experts uh, that you can find on the LSE website uh, discussing public opinion in Russia. You know, broadly, Russia is divided around three different ways, Russian public opinion. One, you can forget fanatical ethnic nationalists, and they will be a problem no matter what happens, and they're about a third of the society. Then there's a large group in the middle of society, in, in uh, probably 40% or so of the society, who are the apathetic, uh, apolitical group that you discuss in the chapter. And I'm not apologizing for them, but I think that they are a, uh, when you present that apolitical group with the realities of what support for Putin means, then the hope in the situation, and that's why Ukrainian victory is so important, you have to change the political calculation for that group and the subsequent political calculation for Putin himself. And then, of course, there is a minority who are against the war. I mean, and this is the last thing uh, I'll say. I mean, of course, lots of them, lots of them are abroad, and you know, you do find some incredible stories. I mean, at Yargolonian University, when I was, we were there together earlier this year, an 18-year-old Russian uh, girl, a student. Uh, at Yargolonian University spent two months uh, on the border between uh, Poland and Ukraine supporting the human humanitarian effort. Like many Russians overseas now, they can't go home to see their family because they are publicly supporters of a Ukrainian victory. And of course, if you study conflict like our colleagues do, this is not an unusual story. We, have, we work with our Syrian colleagues, they can't, they're refugees, they can't go back to Syria, they would be killed. So I'm not exceptionalizing it, it's actually an everyday story in the world we're in. But I think, you know, if there's an optimistic scenario, at some point that group will, 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 prov will have a pass to for those that want to, to return to Russia. And I think, yeah, and I'll just, I'll just leave it there, because I, I spoke for too long. Since I, um, chose one of those difficult chapters I suppose to read, I maybe should add to what you were saying. Look, I mean, I, predictably, I don't share your optimism. Um, and one of the reasons I don't share it is because I actually have a lot of family in Russia. Um, and if you ask Ukrainians, most of them will have uh, a story to share. And most of those stories will be very similar to mine, most probably much more dramatic than mine is. I mean, in my case, uh, most of my Russian family stopped talking to us were in 2014, immediately after the Maidan revolution. Uh, they, they simply believed the telly more than they wanted to hear what we had to say about it. Uh, and the remaining ones preferred not to talk about politics. They were very much apolitical until there was one auntie that continued to talk about us, uh, to us until uh, the 31st of December this year, so New Year's. Eve when Russia spent the entire New Year's Eve bombing the entirety of Ukraine. Um, and then somehow she found the uh, courage, I don't know if that's courage, uh, desire to reveal her true um, position. And the apolitical turned out to be very much in support of the leadership and the, the, the propaganda in Russia. So, you know, neutrality, like, like saying I'm, we're taking a neutral stance, or we have taken in the West, Western Europe neutral stance for the first eight years, um, is already a position. Being neutral while watching 
the perpetration of war crimes um, amounts to facilitating those war crimes to continue, right? The same on a different scale because we're talking about the state, you know, supporting the state that is actually perpetrating those crimes, but being apolitical in Russia is very much, um, you know, um, very much translates into essentially facilitating the, the actions of the state. Um, so yeah, anecdotal evidence, I think, provides a lot of support for the surveys that we might or might not trust. Also, I haven't seen the growing numbers of Russian protesters in safe cities in, in Western Europe or in the States or elsewhere, and hundreds of thousands of them have left. Um, but I don't see these enormous protests against the war. And also, not just protests against the war, but uh, in the political elite, among the among the so-called liberals, I mean, it's a, it's become a running joke, which started at least a hundred years ago in, in Ukraine, that Russian liberalism ends at Ukrainian border. Um, you know, you don't hear the discussion of Russian imperialism of the past uh, and and admission of, of of complicity and how harmful it's been to non-Russian populations of the Russian Empire and then subsequent. Uh, nations post post empire and post collapse of the of Soviet Union as well, and you don't hear them talk about complicity as such. It, these discussions simply don't exist, um, and yeah, and and when they do begin to when when Russian imperialism is beginning to get mentioned and it's only just started to happen the last few months, it feels terribly opportunistic. Um, and the re another reason and I'll stop there. Another reason why I don't share your optimism is because. For there to be some kind of change, there has to be appetite for it. I do not see any evidence of, of that appetite inside Russian society at all. Um, I just wanted to very briefly say something about NATO uh, question. Uh, what a difference a year makes. Uh, this time last year, uh, I kept hearing everywhere I went as a full-time full Ukrainian being invited to speak about these things and give a human angle. Um, to the discussion that, you know, NATO, it's all about NATO expansionism and we shouldn't provoke Putin. And what do we discuss now? We discuss how quickly Ukraine should be accepted, on what grounds, what sort of security guarantees Ukraine should perceive, uh, receive, because we finally understood that our security in the rest of Europe very much depends on security in Ukraine, and there will no, not be security in, in, in Europe until, until the security in Ukraine. And I think the next step is to now understand um, the sooner we do this, the better for all of us, is that peace and appeasement are different things. Ukrainians want peace more than anybody else, but for us, peace means it has to be durable and sustainable. Um, any ceasefire is a prolongation of conflict, and it's, it's an opportunity to, to Russia, for Russia to rearm itself from whatever sources um, that, that it already finds, and to, uh, to, scale, uh, to stage another uh, escalation of, of the war. Um, so when we talk about peace and the so-called concessions and so on, let's bear this in mind. I must say, I don't disagree with you. I mean, from the, I don't know nearly as much about it as you do, but I try to follow it about the majority that it's not really apathy. It, it is complicit. I think that's true, but what I also observe and this is what my anti-war friends who I talk to say, is that I think Russia is beginning to implode. Now, whether it will implode in positive ways, that people will realize it was a bad thing, or whether it will 
turn to chaos and violence on a large scale. I'm really not sure, but more and more things keep happening, whether it's the killing of this guy in St. Petersburg, whether it's, I just heard that they decided not to have the May the 5th, May the 9th parade, um, that they don't want people to put up pictures of their, uh, of the people who died in the great patriotic war, because they're afraid they're gonna put up pictures of all the people who are dying now. So, and we keep hearing more and more and more about the people who are being sent to prison, the speeches they're making and so on. So it seems to me a lot's happening that we don't really know about in Russia. And my concern is that it may not necessarily be happening in a positive direction. It may be happening in a negative direction, but definitely changes on the way. And, but I think that's quite frightening, actually. So, so there were lots of hands up. So there are lots of hands up. So why don't I take oh, wow. three at a time? I can't see a single woman, and I always <coughs> take women first. Is that yes? Okay. <laughs> you get to come first. <laughs> Thank you. Um, my name is Mandy Merck, and I teach film. Um, the question is this, and I'd like any of you to answer it. I, I thought maybe Paul might want to pick it up. Can the Europe and the United States sustain Ukraine to victory without the support of any of the BRICS countries? And why won't the more progressive elements among those countries, notably Lula's Brazil and South Africa, support Ukraine? Okay, and we won't answer them yet. I'm gonna take this side, and, but I promise I'll come back to the other side. So these two people just here. Hi, uh, Nicola Stellini, student of Global Politics, Master of Science here at the LSE. Um, so we've discussed kind of in details how the Russians are divided between the apolitical and the supporters, and the soldiers are divided between this category and the other category, but while Paul said correctly uh, the West has had a role in supporting Ukraine, I think that we also ought to divide the West and the people that compose it. Uh, I come from Italy, which is a country that has shown surprising levels of pro-Russianists, right? And I wonder how you think, how you perceive the people that say things like, oh, we are not to send offensive weapons. They kill people. Like, I, I, I believe that is either naive to the point of stupidity, and as you said, ignorance is a choice, or it is just ill-fated. And... But, you know, that's one thing. And then uh, in the February edition of Le Monde Diplomatique, which is basically the French version of uh, foreign affairs, there was a two-page article about the fact that the media are the avant-garde, uh, the, um, the, the, the war party. They, they, felt they, they foster the cause of the war as if a war is not already going on. And I was wondering, what would you like to say to those people? Because, well, Obviously, you have a very personal and human connection to all of this. Uh, I loathe them, I, but I, I don't know if I'm qualified to. Thank you. Okay, and then this guy here. Hi, I'm Sebastiano Dell'Aqua, student here in, at the LSE in the European Institute. Um, Dr. Chromichuk, thank you so much for the talk and the book. It, the account was touching, personally. And uh, so thank you for it. 
My question, I'll go straight to the point and ask to what extent have you understood the evolution of this conflict to this point have become about Ukrainian identity shifting towards a, Europe, a future in Europe or as a European identity? Can you hold the mic closer to yeah, you? Yeah, sorry. Um, sorry I'll rephrase the I'll uh, repeat the question. To what extent do you think that the evolution of this war has led to Ukrainian, um, the Ukrainian cause to have shifted towards Ukraine as a part of Europe or Ukrainian identity within uh, a, European, a larger European identity? Thank you. And do you want to add one from online? Uh, the online ones have, uh, have actually been covered. There were a few about NATO. Uh, and there's one about the personal and the big political that I think was kind of pretty much covered earlier, so I think we can... Okay, so we'll go straight to Alessia. Oh, I, I thought, Paul, well, it would make sense for you to begin with for the questions that everyone still was okay. asked directly Shut to me you. up, because otherwise <laughs> yeah. we won't have... Yeah, um, I, think, I think it's entirely um, logical, I think it's entirely possible that um, what you might call the global north elements of the West can enact a strategy which leads to um, a just outcome of this conflict. And the, 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 the parts of the strategy are diplomatic pressure on Russia, diplomatic engagement with China to not put hundreds of Chinese tanks onto trains, the same trains we saw in February 2021. Don't do that um, uh, without the BRICS. I think that is possible because the BRICS um, are as they are currently behaving, don't have any moral leverage in the, in the world, I'm sad to say. Even Lula, who I rejoiced at his, his, uh, his uh, victory, is behaving like a clown. Um, you know, the level, the level of sophistication of Lula's intervention here is not, is not serious. It's of the same seriousness as the Chinese diplomat who said that Lithuania, Latvia and Estonia don't deserve uh, recognition under international law. However, I want to engage the peoples of the Global South and the progressive parties of the Global South. And those of us living here in the metropolitan north need to remember something. We're, I'm from the left of British politics. Uh, people like me have been vilified for saying we want a critical reading of our own imperial history in schools. But for saying that, you're seen as a woke, uh, woke warrior. Uh, the people who decried us for saying we want a critical reading of slavery, a critical reading of, of colonialism, um, of including British colonialism in Ireland, uh, are now reaping uh, the, the rewards from their, the, the paralysis of our own diplomatic um, experience in um, the Global South, including with China. China's not the Global South, but with this country, the one you're sitting in, probably buildings around us uh, were built with the proceeds of the opium trade. Uh, and how often do we acknowledge that? Almost never. So I think there's a, there's a political self-critique to be done in the Global North, but I do think it's a doable thing if we have to do it without significant support from Global South, because it's actually not that hard. What we should have done, as Alessia said, we should have all the tanks we're giving now, all the armoured cars, all the stockpiles of weapons, the F-16s hopefully, we should have given on the 22nd of February 2022. Um, I know why we didn't, because there wasn't a belief in the Ukrainian ability to do that. There was confusion about Russia's intent. It's all very well, a lot of military experts say now, we always knew this was a full-scale invasion. I sat in the Ukrainian Defence Ministry on four days before this happened, and they, they would simply say, 
and you know they were fairly senior people simply saying we cannot imagine that they're going to invade full scale because they don't have the forces to win only forces to win if they fully mobilize the, the military and the, uh, the society and they're not so what the, you know what the hell are they doing and I, we, we with the best will and the uh, best intentions misread how serious Russia was about the full-scale dismemberment and destruction and genocidal eradication of Ukrainian society and I think unfortunately now it's clear what the stakes are we should have put what we we're putting in a lot earlier but I think what you know what needs there's a lot um, you could give it you could, you could Ukraine every tank in the British Army when they got 227 and that would still be about a fifth of what they've actually got so they've captured more from the Russian forces. So there are finite limits to what we can do. So then the next phase is, does the UK uh, economy go on to a semi-war footing to produce, um, and does the European, does Kraus Maffei and, um, and Rheinmetall go on to a semi-war footing to produce more leopards, going tanks, to go straight to Ukraine? I'm afraid that might be, you know, if we're in 1938, by 1942, those will be the questions that we're asking, and that's only four years away. This is not going to go away. This might, the thing. But actually, Paul, there was another reason, and that's the reason why you get such problems in Germany. And the other reason is that people are terrified that this will escalate Absolutely, yeah. to an all-out war between uh, Russia and the West, and that nuclear weapons will be used. And that's why people were really nervous. Mm. And you know, they're kind of walking a tightrope on this. And we're still nervous about it. I mean, it's odd that now we're saying, no, no, he's not going to use nuclear weapons and the Chinese are going to put pressure on him not to use nuclear weapons. But he's a madman. He's genocidal. So it is terribly alarming. Mm. Uh, so I think that was the reason. Uh, anyway, Alessia. But I prefer not to think of Putin as a madman because it has somehow um, relieves him of um, some of the responsibility that he ought to, that he ought to, well, that we ought to obviously hold him responsible to. So you know, he's 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 uh, he's got his own logic. It's not the logic that we use, um, but his logic is to stay in power, is to protect his wealth and that of his cronies. And uh, Ukraine has always been a pain in the backside for him in that sense, especially since the Maidan Revolution. Uh, because it wanted to be a democratic, independent country without this uh, control in Russia. So he's, he's, he's not a madman. He's someone who should be tried for his crimes. Um, but a couple of, I'll come back to the nuclear threat as well. Um, I think those questions are related. And obviously, it's not just Italy. There's, there are other countries as well in, in Europe that have, uh, they have uh, not necessarily put their trust in Ukraine. Um, Germany being one of them, of course, maybe the most obvious example. I just recall the, the agonizing discussion back and forth, back and forth about leopard tanks. And what, one of the most unpleasant aspects of this discussion was the, the, not just the uh, political class, but also so-called ordinary people <coughs> were saying that they can't imagine that their tanks, German-made tanks, will be used to kill the Russians. Mm. And this profound, uh, profoundly deeply ingrained guilt, war guilt against the Russian society is still very much there and has been exploited by uh, Russian propaganda for many, many years. Now the question I had, why don't they have a problem with Russian bombs killing Ukrainians? And these tanks are actually, can actually you know, minimize 
uh, those atrocities? And secondly, why doesn't the guilt against what was then the Soviet Union translate into Ukrainians, uh, the guilt for, to Ukrainians and, and Belarusians? The, the two countries that were occupied actually experienced multiple occupations throughout the war uh, and have suffered huge devastation. Um, but, but I think this is a combination of the need to do soul searching and proper history reading and rereading uh, in the country itself and also examining how Russian propaganda shaped that way of thinking because a lot of effort has been put into uh, that way of, of thinking. But the good news is it's changing. We've seen the, the road uh, that uh, the, the Germany took a long road mm. to change, but, but, but it did change. The, the opinion has changed there. And at, unfortunately, to a huge cost, with a huge cost to Ukrainians, uh, but it did change. And I'd like to think that it will continue to change in other parts of Europe as well. And I think your second question about the so-called Ukraine fatigue is related to that. This, or, you know, how do we, like, the war is over and so on, how do we deal with that, if I understood correctly? Uh, the second question, like, so, some people say, no, offensive weapons are bad, I think yeah, there's yeah. some dimension on that here, but some other people make more fine-grained uh, analysis and say that the media are the party of the war. Uh -huh. right? And I think that it's fundamentally wrong, there is a war going on, mm -hmm. not a court in our society that yeah. is fierce yeah. by Russian sharp power, by Russian disinformation, yeah. cannot afford yeah. to find great things mm. to such a level. Yeah, so no, absolutely. I mean, one thing I'd like us all to ask ourselves in the so far safe cities of Western Europe is, um, how long do we want to live in a world where Russia is able to blackmail us with, with, with nuclear weapons? Uh, it'll continue doing so, and we've given in to that blackmail for so long, and, and these threats of uh, escalation. I mean, it's been, it's, and it's not just nuclear weapons. Let's remember uh, brief occupation of Chernobyl uh, zone, but also we just had a sad anniversary of the Chernobyl nuclear disaster a couple of days ago. Uh, and also the fact that they still occupy the Parisian nuclear power plant. Um, and, you know, this is an extremely dangerous situation that they've put the rest of Europe in. Uh, how long are we prepared to tolerate this bully uh, that keeps, keeps holding a gun to the whole democratic community's head? This is what we need to ask. And then I think when we realize that is our war and we have a role to play in it, then those manipulations will be less effective. Uh, on the question of Ukrainian identity, um, I, you know what? I mean, it's changed a lot. Um, I think it's been crystallized at the moment what it means to be Ukrainian and the way that it has been crystallized, again, it's, it, the starting point I think was in 2014, well, maybe before that, but really a, a big uh, push towards that way of thinking was in 2014, uh, and it's about Ukrainians as a civic nation. Uh, and we've really seen that uh, flourish this year, the, the, the last year since the start of the full-scale invasion. It's, you know, protection of each other's rights. It's a, it's a, it's a nation where Crimean Tatars, where, um, you know, Roma, Hungarian, Romanian, Polish, Jewish, Ukrainians, Ukrainians, Russian ethnic Ukrainians, all identify as Ukrainians. Uh, and they know exactly what it means. It means belonging to that state that they, are, that they wish to protect and therefore protect their basic rights and freedoms and so on. And whether that means being European, well, yes, it, 
Ukrainians have not really had a problem with identifying as Europeans. It's, I think, Western Europeans who have had a problem of accepting uh, Ukrainians as part of Europe. And I think here we need to, um, here it's, it's up to us to do some homework as well as to, for, for Western Europe to stop splitting Europe into first class and second class Europe. Um, and to actually understand that one of the reasons why we missed so much about Russia's war in Ukraine is because we didn't listen to the voices that we didn't find credible. Uh, voices coming out not just from Ukraine but from East Central Europe, uh, more generally speaking. Voices from those countries that have had relationship with Moscow, a colonial imperialist relationship uh, with Moscow. So yeah, um, maybe this is the moment for Europeans to begin to remember what it means for all of us to be European. Great. Uh, so, uh, oh, I'm not going to bring you in for the <laughs> oh, yeah. only no, reason that we've got seven minutes left, <laughs> and I promised the other people they could ask their questions. Yeah. So we've got four more questions. Can you do a minute? Can you be really quick because we've not got much time? And I'll start right at the back. <clears throat> Thank you very much um, to all of the contributors this evening. It's been really, really interesting to hear from you. Uh, my name's Tim. Uh, I'm a former student at the LSE um, and a former Army Reserve Officer in the British Army. Um, when I was actually um, deployed in Kosovo last year, we had the chance to speak to some Ukrainian soldiers um, who were still there, and they said there was a bit of a joke amongst them that whilst the West was looking for how NATO, uh, Ukraine could join NATO, in reality it's a bit more... Um, appropriate that we talk of NATO joining Ukraine with the current balance of force that's going to happen there. So my question sort of relates to that a little bit. I'm glad you made it. <laughs> yeah. um, my question sort of relates to that actually, that in a, in a post-war Ukraine, what will, uh, in a post-war Ukraine that is part of NATO and part of the European Union and is taking presumably a more active stance in other international institutions such as the UN, um, what will its relationships and its agenda look like? What will a post-war Ukraine seek to achieve and accomplish um, after this war is ended in its engagements with European institutions, wider global institutions, and potentially uh, those states who've tried to hedge a line between the two sides, such as Hungary, such as Turkey, such as China, such as India, and so on? Thank you. Okay. Um, so we'll take you two and then finally end with you. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Um, so my name's Pete Hall. I'm an ordinary human being. Uh, many years ago, I walked through Europe, meeting, I met many, many World War II veterans from both sides. I always asked the same question, was it worth it? All the sacrifices, the lives, the damage, not one single person said, yes, it was worth it. Not one. All the way from England to Russia. So my question to both uh, Mark and Alexia is, well, what, what will a successful Ukraine look like 20 years after a settlement is reached. All the sacrifices made now, uh, will that affect future corruption? You know, these are the answers I would like. Okay. 
Now we go on to this question, and then finally the last one at the front. Very Thank good. you very much. Uh, Jonathan, I uh, run a podcast uh, on, on, on the conflict. Um, so it seems every generation that we've sort of failed to understand Russia, uh, failed to understand its motivations, failed to predict its actions, and we've especially failed to notice the imperialist strand in uh, Russian motivations. You know, we failed to see it as a key part of the Soviet project, the Bolshevik project. We failed to understand that Russia itself was a post-colonial society. Uh, we failed to see it in Chechnya, um, and very presciently, Joker. So what's your question? Um, well, Joker, did I predict everything that's going to happen now? The question is, are we planning for post-Putin imperial Russia? Okay, and here. Hello, I, I work in the university library. Um, I think the panelists seem to think that because Ukraine is in the right, uh, which it is, it's bound to win. Well, I read an article recently by the News Chronicles correspondent in Madrid in 1936, where he said that there's so much energy and idealism on the government side, and so much evil on Franco's side, that the government can't possibly lose and Franco can't possibly win. Now, if you look at Russia's previous wars, the war against Germany, the war against Finland, they've always been prepared to accept mass casualties in a way that no Western <coughs> government ever would in order to win. So I suspect, and I speak more in sorrow than in anger, that Putin will just carry on a war of attrition um, indefinitely, hoping that he'll wear down Ukraine's will to resist. And quite frankly, I think the Western world won't intervene because well, at the risk of being controversial, most Western countries seem to be paralysed by um, self-doubt at the moment. Mm. So, um, well, that's a sombre question mm. on which to end. And I'm going to start with go Luke, Paul, and Alessia. And you can add anything in general that you want to say as a result of it all. Uh, so, I, I was going to say two things that hopefully speak to all of the questions. Uh, the first is that I think we have to be careful how we talk about the global south. We all do it. It's, uh, we all talk. It's, a, it's the term that no one likes. What is the global south? It's a, uh, it, it, what we mean, te we tend to mean is societies that have had an experience of Western imperialism and they're spread all over the globe, but no one likes the term. And of course today the global south includes India, that is a great power essentially, and Brazil that's a major power too, but it also includes countries like Ghana and others. Mm. Um, and I think I would particularly urge caution in how sometimes supporters of Ukraine talk about how Africa is voting and how Africa is positioning in relation uh, to this conflict. Primarily because it's, it's not in our interest to downplay support for Ukraine in the continent of Africa. There was a clear majority of African states that have voted the right way. Many of them have given extremely passionate uh, pro-Ukrainian speeches like Ghana in the debate on Russophobia. There were 17 African states that, yes, abstained on the major votes, and there was only one that voted in favour, so it's not in our interest here. And then the second thing about the economics um, of the war that I will link to that is ultimately it's the responsibility of the wealthy countries of the world and indeed the, those on the by law those on the UN Security uh, Council to uphold the legal and international order and of course as Paul said earlier you know the West isn't remotely on a war footing in relation to Ukraine Ukraine has had to go to the IMF because the West won't inject 
enough money. And my fear in this situation is that the economic situation in Ukraine becomes so bad that it might mean that Ukraine loses the economic ability to fight the war itself. Now, that's not the only factor here. I think the same is actually true on the Russian side as well, but for different reasons, not because the de domestic economic situation has gone out of control, but because of the dependency of the Russian military on global supply chains that they're cut off from. So th this could be a conflict where both sides potentially come to a forced armistice, and I think that's one scenario we should bear in mind. Yeah, great. And I just wanted to add that me and Luke are having lunch tomorrow with the former Kenyan foreign minister who actually studied in Ukraine and speaks Russian and is passionately keen to help us. So yeah. this is just to echo the point about Africa. So, <laughs> Paul. Yeah, I mean, the thing about is it worth it, I totally, yeah, I think that's the response that, that many war veterans have. But if you go to, for example, the Republic of Ireland uh, and speak to ex-combatants there, they tend to say, yes, it has been worth it to resist British imperialism. Uh, I think people who fought American imperialism in Vietnam are pleased and proud that they did fight it. And we must never forget that this is an anti-imperialist war of which Ukraine didn't choose to start. Um, the, the only final thing I want to say is that, is that to reiterate something that you, Alessia, have taught me, and also reading books by uh, people like, above all, people like Tim Snyder have taught, have taught us, we must see Ukraine qua Ukraine. Ukraine is a country with 41 million people that has a history that is reminding us of that it has a pre-Soviet history organized around itself and its own national development. Um, we must not see it as a subsection of Russian studies or, you know, the, most of the discussion here quite, quite understandably has been what about, what's Russia going to do? What, I, as if Russia is the only thing with agency. My, I have only been to Ukraine twice and the 10 years between the two visits were so stark in their illustration of the emergence of a new kind of Ukrainian national consciousness that I think we're on a journey where we don't know where that national consciousness ends, but it will determine the outcome of the, of the war, not the dynamics of Russian national consciousness or anything that we want. And that's quite a, that's again, one always has to be wary about drawing parallels with the Second World War, but it's true in the end that in the Second World War, the major imperialist countries that fought uh, Nazi Germany and Soviet Russia, uh, th there, were, there was almost no example I can think of where a country emerges as a result of that war as a major continental player. But it's quite obvious to me that Ukraine, if it wins, even if it wins operationally in the next six months, could end up as a major player in European uh, politics and therefore history. And we just have to get used to that. It's not something that those of us who went to university in the 70s and 80s, when you know Ukraine was just literally a subset of East European and Slavonic studies. We're not used to it, but we need to get used to it. Alessia, you get the last word. Great, thank you. Um, uh, there were two questions that asked me to predict the future, and I refused to do so, um, partly because I'm a historian. Uh, but I could uh, 
say that there are definitely reconstruction plans that are being put in place, and obviously political trajectory of Ukrainians is very clear. Um, and maybe, look, could speak about reconstruction if, if we have time, because I know you're interested in that. Well, first, we have to win the war. We have to win the war and begin to rebuild uh, the country. Um, and, and then, yeah, like I say, I think political trajectory is clear and it's not being uh, disputed at all. It's very much towards NATO and uh, uh, EU. Um, also, uh, corruption uh, was uh, a question about corruption. We have to remember that Ukrainians are fighting against corruption since the 90s and especially since 2014, and in some cases very successfully. And we continue to fight against it, even in the context of full-scale invasion. We have seen recently there was a, a, a scandal in, in, in the defense ministry where certain elements of corruption were being revealed. The journalists talked about it openly. Uh, it was being discussed everywhere in the Ukrainian media. And also there was this uh, parallel discussion, should, you know, how is it that we're discussing this? I mean, surely it's playing into Russia's propaganda and so on. But the importance is it's, it's important for Ukrainian society to deal with corruption and that is what they want to do and that is what they will do regardless of uh, Russia's uh, war or indeed whether they're being accepted into EU and what the conditions are and so on. It's something for us to sort out because we don't want to live in a corrupt society with corrupt politicians and so on. Uh, and then I think I could maybe combine the other two questions, uh, you know, how long can we continue fighting for uh, and was it worth it? You see, uh, if you go to newly liberated territories and you see torture chambers and mass graves, and if you look, you can go on satellite images, Google images, and have a look at Mariupol, recently updated images, or you could look at uh, a town called Marinka uh, in eastern Ukraine, and you see completely raised to the ground, basically non-existent ghost towns, you know it's worth it because we have no alternative and Ukrainians will continue fighting for as long as it takes because the alternative are the raised cities to the ground, are the mass graves, are the torture chambers. There is no alternative. We have to keep fighting. And Jonathan, to your question, um, are we planning for post-Putin imperial Russia? No, and we absolutely should. And I think the first step uh, to start planning for it is to ask ourselves uh, to give answers to all of those questions that you raised. Why have we missed uh, the imperialist element in our understanding of Russia? Uh, and maybe one of the first answers we should give is, well, because of our own imperialist past and the remnants of it in the way that we perceive uh, the world. Thank you. That was wonderful. And thank you all for coming and thank the people online. Thank you so much for having us. And DLSE. And DLSE. And DLSE. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favorite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.